Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, Child and Teen Development Specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Are we raising an anxious generation? Many would agree that we are. The causes of the uptick in anxiety among children has started to be discussed even within our podcast. We've talked to Jessica Leahy, and we've talked about that obsession with failure. We've talked to Julie Lithcott-Hames about bubble wrapping our children, and that leaves them unprepared for life that we deliver to them at 18, a life that they sort of land in where they don't have the skills and the resilience or the confidence to take on the life we've created for them. In The Self-Driven Child, authors William Stixrud and Ned Johnson continue this conversation, focusing specifically on the ways that children today are being denied a sense of controlling their own lives, doing what they find meaningful and succeeding or failing on their own and on their own terms. While screen time and technology certainly are part of the problem, the real issues lie with us, the parents and the teachers who have their hearts in the right place but are nevertheless taking the opportunities away from children that would allow them to grow stronger, more confident, more autonomous, more competent, and more themselves. William Stixrud, PhD, is a clinical neuropsychologist, frequent lecturer, presenter, author, and founder of the Stixrud Group. He is a member of the teaching faculty at Children's National Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Additionally, Dr. Stixrud is the author, along with Ned Johnson, of the nationally best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. You'll also see him featured for his expertise in publications such as The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Times of London, The Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, Time Magazine, Scientific American, Business Week, Barron's, and New York Magazine. And fun fact, Dr. Stixrud often performs as a musician in a band. I am so thrilled to have you on the show. So welcome, Dr. Stixrud, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Great to be here. Well, I'm so thrilled you're here. This is such an interesting book. I have written to you and told you I was having trouble putting it down. But before we get into the meat of the matter, for those who haven't had their, gotten their hands on your book, The Self-Driven Child, or haven't seen you speak, can you tell me what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in looking into the science and sense of giving kids more control over their lives? In 1998, um, I started studying about what chronic stress does to the brain and what, and particularly what it does to a developing brain. And it's ugly. And uh, not, at, not long after that, I, I learned that 
there's four things that make life stressful. And, and, and Sonia Lupian, a neuroscientist in Montreal, summarizes these things with the acronym NUTS. It's novelty, unpredictability, perceived threat, and a low sense of control. And the sense of control is the, uh, the, most, the thing that's most stressful for, for human beings. That, that sense that something's happening and there's nothing I can do about it. And so it seemed to me that given, given how, how damaging chronic stress is to kids' brains and their development, and given even the last 20 years, this dramatic increase in, in uh, stress-related mental health problems, I figured that this, this sense of control must be a really big deal. And also, every place that, that, that I, I look to try to understand, how do kids become self-motivated? All the arrows pointed in the direction of autonomy or a sense of control. And so, um, certainly one of my major uh, aspects of my job is trying to minimize the extent to which kids suffer from stress-related mental health problems and find a healthy self-motivation somewhere in between the extremes of obsessively driven and what's the point of trying. Absolutely. Now, I know you said in your book, in recent years, we've learned a lot about the damage athletes suffer from hitting their heads too much, either on soccer balls or on the 260-pound linebacker in their way. Today, yeah. we think a lot about the long-term consequences of concussions. Yeah, he looks okay now, but too many more of those he's not going to be able to remember his kids' names. We think stress should be talked about in this way, too. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on the brain, especially young brains. And you connect this to your main thesis, that everyone, kids included, need a sense of control. So let's focus there for a moment. So what do you mean when you write that you want kids to have that sense of control over their lives? And why is this such a big deal for kids? Well, in part because if, if you look at the, the research on a sense of control, the, 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 it, it's, it's good for everything. It's good for physical health, for mental health. You live longer if you have a sense of control. You, you're healthier. You perform better. You do better academically. It's just good for everything because when, when you have a sense of control, the brain works optimally. And there's very interesting research that we, we, we discuss in our book with rats. And it turns out that rats' brains are actually structured quite a lot like humans. And you can do experiments with rats. You can't do with humans. And so Steve Meyer at the University of Colorado would have, these, would have rats and, and he'd shock their tail. And there's a wheel in their cage. And if, they turned the, if, if one rat would turn the wheel, this shock would stop. And that rat who had that experience of being able to, to, to master, to, uh, control a stressful situation. It changed the brain in a way that the rat became complete coper. No matter what kind of situation you put him in, he'd just go into coping mode. Low stress hormones, just go into coping mode. The prefrontal cortex would activate, damp down the stress response, and he'd just go into to, to be resilient and coping. And the, the, if rats didn't have, they got shocked and they couldn't control it, they became nervous wrecks. And so there's, there's evidence with a lot of different kinds of animals and with people that when you have a sense of control, that you, you're less stressed, your prefrontal cortex activates and will damp down your stress response when you're faced with a stressful situation. So that it's important for having an optimal brain state. And what, 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 what really, the neurological marker of basically good mental health is strong connections between the prefrontal cortex, the, the, the part of the brain that can think logically and put things in perspective and go into the past and the future, and the amygdala, the part of the brain that senses and reacts to threat. 
And we want kids to, when you have a sense of control, your prefrontal cortex is regulating your amygdala. And when you start to feel stressed, it goes the other way around. You go defensive, defensive kind of reacting. And so we want kids as much as possible as they're growing up to be in a brain state where that prefrontal cortex is regu regulating the rest of the brain, including the amygdala. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. We've talked about the amygdala a lot and how important that is for kids' sense of well-being, that they are able to try new things, that they don't let fear get the best of them. Yeah. And, you know, we receive a lot of messages about the need for kids to feel successful, but also to be successful. Failure has become the new F word. Um, and so many parents who fear failure as a parent, failure in comparison to the Joneses, failure to launch, failure at the disapp disappointing sort of tisk tisk look of the neighbors and teachers who are working against failure and the test, find them talking about failure and success and what are they gonna do? So they find themselves taking over, bubble wrapping kids, teaching to the test, this works against this idea of providing opportunity for a sense of controlling kids that helps them to become self-directed. And it also can actually make them more fearful of trying. So what are some ways that parents and teachers, administrators, coaches, and other adults who work with kids can get out of the way and help to foster a healthy sense of control in kids without that fear that's guiding them so much of the time. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the, the way kids become resilient is they, they ha something stressful happens and they deal with it. Because this, if something happens to you or me or to our kids or to, to, for me to my grandchildren, what happens when, as you start to deal with it is your prefrontal cortex activates, dampens down your stress response, and you go into coping mode. And that's what, that's what trains you to be resilient. And so if something stressful happens, rather than freaking out or panicking that or quitting, that you go and you, you cope. And that, so it's not that we want to protect kids from all stress. In fact, we don't. We don't want to bubble wrap them or as, as they, you know, they, we have snowplow parenting. And mm -hmm. I was recently interviewed by a journalist in the Netherlands who said they call it curling you know, the, the Olympic sport curly, we just yes. by the way, you know, and we don't want to do that because huh. it's, the, the way you become resilient is that your brain engages and copes and ideally with support. But that, so we don't want to, we don't want to bubble wrap kids on the other, but what we can do is well, certainly one thing is we don't want to take responsibility for something that's theirs. And certainly a couple of the basic principles that we talk about in our book one, that you can't, make another, you can't make a kid do anything. You really can't make another human being do something against their will. Mm. And it doesn't make sense to fight with a kid about the same thing over and over again. So the second chapter of our book, it's called, I Love You Too Much to Fight With You About Your Homework. Right. And it's, it's something that I, I, a line I wrote in 1986 because I saw so many kids who were fighting constantly with their parents about homework. And I learned in 1986 for the first time that homework doesn't seem to contribute to learning in elementary school. And I thought, I thought something's really wrong with this picture. So I started suggesting to parents, just say, I love you too much to fight with you. You're the most precious thing to me. I don't want to fight about this all the time. And also, I, I'm willing to do anything I can to help. I'm willing to be your homework consultant. 
I'm willing to set my hours from 6.30 to 7.30, help you every night. But I'm not willing to, to chase around the house or try to make you do it or fight about it because I don't want to weaken you. And if I act like it's my job to see that your homework gets done, I'm going to weaken you because it's really your job. And I think that that's, 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 so that's one principle for, for parents and, and educators as well, that we don't want to take responsibility for something that's really the kids because, because we weaken them. It's so hard to take in, but at the same time, you spend so much time in the book talking about the need for our children to be motivated, that they need to be self-motivated. Science tells us that we want our kids to have an internal locus of control, feeling that they're in control of their outcomes. And we want our kids to be internally motivated so that we don't have to dangle the carrot in front of their faces to get them to take action on what needs to be done. So given that there are many different types of kids, and you mentioned them in your book in a, such a creative way, the kids that are externally motivated by fear and highly stressed out, the Hermione Grangers of the world, and right. kids who don't seem to be motivated to do much of anything, the Eeyores of this world, the child who's motivated to do many things, just not the things that he needs to do. So what are the keys to helping kids find their own internal motivation when you are actively telling us as parents and teachers that we can't be the ones who are making them do what we need them to do. Right. And I, so the first thing I would say is, is treating kids respectfully. You know, that, that, that one of our mottos is that kids have a brain in their head and they want their lives to work. And I think that we want to expose kids to stuff that may turn them on. And, um, and we, we have this idea that we don't, that we, we think about ourselves, especially as our kids get, get older, is more as consultants to our kids. As consultants meaning, I'm going to help you try to figure out what's right for you or help you figure out how you want your life to go. But I, I can't make you do, do anything. And I think that, um, that the use of rewards, we know that the use of rewards, uh, certainly there's a place for rewards, uh, but for the most part, they serve to undermine that kind of internal motivation. And all the, if you look at the, the major thinkers about motivation with kids, how do they develop motivation? It's all about autonomy. We look at Carol Dweck, who her mindsets theory, and the idea of a growth mindset is simply I can do this to my own effort. I can get better the more I practice. It's a sense of control. And a fixed mindset is basically there's nothing I can do about it. I'm, I'm born with a certain amount of ability. If we look at self-determination theory, one of the other really powerful theories of motivation that says to be internally motivated, kids have to set, have to set, you have to have the need for autonomy satisfied as well as competence and relatedness. These three things, relatedness, competence, and autonomy. And it's, it keeps coming back to the sense that this is my life. And so we want to expose kids to stuff. I think that we want to respect their own interests. One of the things we talk about in our book is the, the, the importance of a flow experience, where, you, where kids are really engaged in something that they love to do. And a guy named Reed Larson, Reed Larson studies adolescent development. He was studying years ago, how, do, how did kids become self-motivated adolescents and adults? And he concluded, it's not through doing homework. 
is through the passionate pursuit of their pastimes, the stuff they love to do. And even 15 years ago, he was saying video games don't count. We can talk more about that if you want. But when a kid's building with Legos, or a kid's, you know, kids practicing sports, or music, or dance, or gymnastics, or coding, they're really into it, they're really absorbed in it. What they're experiencing is a brain state that's combining high effort, high focus, high, de- high determination with low stress. So certainly one of the things we can do is, 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 re- is respect kids' pastimes and, and make sure that, that they have time to pursue it. I, I just saw a, a kid yesterday who uh, is passionate about horseback riding, just loves it. It's her favorite thing in the world. And she has to cut back in fourth grade because she has too much homework. Mm. which is beyond crazy from my point of view, because mm. the thing that builds that motivation is, is that, in, that sense of this is my life, this is what I love to do, that passion and engagement. And as somebody who was, I, I was a C-plus student in high school, and I don't remember ever finishing a book or ever turning anything on time, but I was a passionate rock and roll guy, and I'd practice every night and be completely absorbed. I'd, I'd practice for two and a half hours, think that 15 minutes had gone by, and I know I sculpted a brain as an adolescent playing rock and roll, that once I found something to study, once I found a career path that made sense, I could go pedal to the metal. So in your book, you talk about the kids that seem like there's nothing that motivates them because they're just not interested in anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, of course, direct us to make sure that you're testing to make sure that they're not depressed or something else is going on. But what do you do for those children who haven't found their passion, who don't seem to be sitting there and 15 minutes, uh, it seems like 15 minutes, but uh, two hours have gone by. And they're the kids who, you know, oh, the only time that they're doing that is if they are on video games. So what is it that we can do with the kids who haven't yet found that passion and it doesn't seem like really anything is motivating for them even though the parent has maybe tried the sports tried the music tried you know the the building and and just doesn't know what's left anymore sure so the first thing is whenever we're worried about our kids one of the things that we want to do is take a long-term perspective because all of our anxiety about our kids, it's not about, the, it's not about the present, it's about the future. So if a parent's worried that my kid doesn't seem to have any passions, all he cares about is video games, the fear is that he's, just, he's never gonna develop anything that he cares about and just gonna li- be living in the basement playing video games. <laughs> I think that is the fear. I know, and it's just, it's just that that doesn't happen very often. And, it, and most of the things that we worry about our kids don't actually happen. We, we worry, we worry that they're going to get stuck in some negative place and not get better. And I think the experience of myself, I've, been a, I've worked with kids for 40 years, it's just not the case that, that most kids don't stay stuck. And so there's a story in the book about a girl who I tested when she was five, who had learning disabilities. I followed her since she was in her 20s. And when she was 14, her mother came to consult with me about uh, the fact that she didn't seem to have any passions. Mm-hmm. And six months later, the mom brought her back, mom came back in about, and asked me about something else. And I said, what about the passion thing? And, and she said, oh my God, I forgot all about that. She said, oh, geez, now you mention it. Right after I saw you, somebody told her about the Washington Animal Rescue League. And she's gotten incredibly involved in the, and she knows every rescue animal in Washington and Maryland and Virginia. And that that passion as she got a little bit older morphed into early childhood education 
And my point is that no one saw that coming. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't see it coming. And there's, there's so many influences in kids' lives that, that, that you, you meet somebody, you have a professor who turns you on, you have, you have a, you meet a girl who doesn't want to slack her, you, know, you, you find somebody else who turns you on to skateboarding or fencing or something you just never thought about before. So my advice is, is don't, don't panic. And, and also, we're, you know, negotiate limits on, so that kids aren't spending all their time on electronic entertainment. Uh, it, because it, it's hard to have anything more stimulating than, than that, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that I don't think that, that video games have that same effect on developing intrinsic motivation uh, that that pursuing art or sport or music do. Because it's harder to stop playing than it is to continue playing, um, and I don't think it does the same thing to the brain. Right. But in any case, I, I it take take a long view, and we, we one of the things I learned. Years ago, when I did a lot of therapy, uh, in addition to the neuropsychological testing I do now, but it was that I'd be sitting with, with families and they'd be really upset about something, and I'd be thinking, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and they come back a week or two later, and something unexpected had happened to solve the problem. So part of what we want to do is manage our own anxiety, realize that we're, we're, realize like we're catastrophizing or we're going to the future, we're, we're, we're fortune telling and going into the future and saying if he's not motivated now, he'll never be motivated. And we want to just, we want to just in a relaxed way, make sure that kids are trying certain things. Encourage kids that, 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 that let them know that, that they'll find something they like. And you don't have to, it's not that you have to have some burning passion throughout your life, but they'll find something that, that, that feels uh, meaningful to them. Just mm-hmm. be encouraging about it. Right. I remember in the book that you you say sometimes the kids need to say to themselves, like, yeah, I might not be really crazy about doing this, but this is where it's going to help me. It's right. going to help me. It's a stepping stone for this, or, you know, it'll help me in this other way. And sometimes we need to reframe it so that they understand that yeah they may not feel passionate about that particular activity but it's helping them in some way to get to where they want to go that is fueling some kind of passion later on yeah i mean i i I, when i used to do therapy with kids i used to talk a lot about the difference between like feeling like doing something and wanting to do it and i used the i used the example of when my, my my daughter was an infant uh, newborn, it was my job when she woke up in the middle of the night to, to, get, to go get her and bring her to her mother to feed her. And there wasn't a single time that I felt like doing it. <laughs> I, I never felt like getting out of bed, but I wanted to. You know, and, and there's a, so I, I, I try to work with kids on, on, on saying, you, you want to graduate from high school. So even though you don't feel like doing this, could you tell yourself, I want to do it, even though I don't feel like it? It's a lot easier to motivate yourself if you say, I want to, than I, than I don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so parents are obviously known to use many tactics to try and get their children to do some things on their own. Some of them work, some of them don't work. Some of them might be considered useful and some just aren't. So what are some general principles for communicating with kids in a way that nurtures a sense of autonomy and agency? And I'm talking specifically about the parents who who are listening to this podcast or the teachers are listening who are saying you know what i think i need to make a change here i think i have been taking over or bubble wrapping or you know enforcing so 
how can I communicate to my child that I now want them to have a sense of autonomy and, and agency, that I've used language that nurtures that? And can you actually give us an example, because we do this on the podcast all the time, what it sounds like in words to communicate with kids in that way? Sure. So in the book, we, when we kind of lay out the, the rationale for the sense of control, and one of the things we do is, is simply t- talk to your kid about, is there stuff in your life that you'd like to have more control over? And if, I was just lecturing in, um, in LA the other, uh, last week, and somebody came up to me and said, God, it was just so cool just talk, having that conversation with my kid about stuff he'd like to have more control over. And we had that conversation, he identified a couple things, and he completely stepped up to the plate. And that doesn't always happen, but, but there, there is that, con- that's, the, that's a really great conversation. We should explore it. You know, I, I don't want to be in control of stuff that's really, you should be in control of. And I, I want to let you know, I'm, I have confidence in your ability to, to, to manage your life. And so you, you have that initial conversation. And certainly one of the basic principles from this point of view regarding communication is get a kid's buy-in. One of the principles of this idea of thinking of yourself as a consultant, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a coach, is, is, is offering help, not trying to force it on a kid, and offering advice, not trying to, Many parents say, God, I've told them a million times. You know, and my, my co-author has this cartoon. His dad has his two sons by the nape of the neck. He's saying, listen up, boys, and listen up good, because I'm only going to tell you this a million times. <laughs> you know, and I think that many parents say, God, I keep telling them over and over again. Well, don't tell them over and over again. It's, 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 it's so powerful to say, and I, I've, got a, I've got some advice about that. Would you like to hear it? I've got an angle on that. Would you like to hear it? And one of the ways I learned this was that I see a lot, because I test for a living, I, I, see, I see a lot of kids who think they're stupid. And a lot of times, a lot of parents and teachers have, have spent tons of energy trying to talk the kid out of that idea. And commonly, the kids are like stuck doors. The harder you try to pull, the, 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 the more, stu- the more they, they, they hang on to this idea that they're stupid. So what I do is, is I say, I'm not going to try to take that away from you. That if you, if if that's you, you want to, you want to keep that kind of view point of view okay I'm okay with that I th- I I really see it differently though and if you'd like to I'll tell you how I see it and 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 so and whenever I do that 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 it just it has a very powerful effect that then I have kids wrapped attention and I can present it to them in a way where they aren't immediately fighting back it's like the like it's like the difference between a real discussion where you listen to each other and a debate. When the other person's talking, you're trying to wait to counter it. So one of the principles for, 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 for me and for, for Ned is, is get buy-in. Just can, can, I, can I just, it's okay if I share my point of view. Don't tell kids the same thing over and over again. If you told them more than once, just send them a text or send them an email or just write a little note saying, saying what it is and say, I'm not going to bug you about this. But can, I, can I bring it up again in two months? Just seeking buy-in so that they aren't constantly fighting our attempts to, uh, to get them to think a certain way or do, do certain things. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking as a parent right now, and let's say the other day, my daughter, uh, we were just talking about lunch, like what do you want for lunch tomorrow? And you know, in your school lunch, my kids are in elementary school. My daughter said, when, when am I gonna be able to make my own lunch? I'm like, uh, now, like when, <laughs> as soon as possible? And, and 
and my son jumped in, who's younger, and he's like, can I make my lunch too? And then he was like, you know, rubbing his hands together like brownies, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was just, you know, and so, and so I'm, I'm just thinking as a parent, as you're talking right now, like in that particular moment, I was like, uh, <laughs> would I really want to hand over the reins to my son who is thinking, brownies 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 right now. Right, right right okay so so in that situation whether it's like you know if you're handing over the reins for even something small like making your own lunch um how do we do that in a way that we can trust our children to do a good job that would be fortifying and healthy and a good choice for them even as they're saying they're interested but they're also kind of <laughs> rubbing their hands to net together sure. and, and sure. excited to just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. chocolate sauce all over everything. <laughs> so the, the, the third chapter in our book, it's about kids as decision makers. And, and I'll, I'll just tell you quickly that um, when, I, when I started my career, it was much more common for kids in public schools to repeat a grade, particularly kindergarten and first grade than it is now. And I, I, I was struck by how many times I, I, I'd test a kid who was 20, and I'd say, where are you in school? And the kid would say, well, I'm a, I'm a freshman in college. I should be a sophomore, but my parents made me repeat the first grade. They're still pissed about it 12 years later, you know? And so what I started to do is to tell, tell the kids, Nobody's going to make you repeat the grade, but let's talk about it. Let's think through the pros and cons. You can talk. Let's talk to your teacher. Let's talk to Doctor Stickstreet about it, so you can make a good decision. And I was blown away, Robin, by how many times I'd see a six-year-old or a seven-year-old who would think all summer about what the right thing to do, and we would arrive at the would conclude in the summer. I think I'm ready to go on, or no, I need to stay back. And I thought, God, these kids can make really good decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. So what I started to do was was to encourage kids to make decisions about their own life and to, and say to parents require teenagers to make decisions about their own life you become a good decision maker in part by making decisions and learning from your mistakes and i felt my whole career that the best message you can give to a teenager besides i'm crazy about you is i have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and learn from your mistakes and with younger kids what i suggest saying is you're the expert on you Nobody knows you better than yourself. You know when you're hungry, you know when you're not hungry, you know when you're hot or cold, you know what you want, you know what's important to you. And so, and that we, we encourage kids to make decisions. And my, my formula is go with the kid's decision unless it's crazy, meaning that unless virtually anybody, now eating brownies, you know, for, brownies, brownies, brownies. That's, crazy. that's crazy. So, you know, so we, we set limits, you know, it's not that, <laughs> This idea of sense of control, it doesn't mean that you're the boss of the house. If the kid's the boss, you know, three-year-olds running the house. It just the opposites of a sense of control are things like feeling helpless or hopeless or passive or resigned or feeling overwhelmed where your life feels out of control, feeling highly anxious where your life feels out of control. And so that that you, you we say here, what would you make make your own lunch? Now there's some rules we got. We'll agree on some rules that if if a brownie's part of it, it's a little part of your lunch. It's not the main thing, you know. With <laughs> rules, but as much as you can, just expressing confidence that kids can make decisions. It, it is so empowering to them, and it's one of the ways that we can we can we can be respected them. And again, it's, it's not that it's not that that um, I'll, I'll, I'm often asked where should my kid go to school. 
And after kids about 10 or so, I said, Let, let's help him figure out the, the, the best choice. And there are some kids who are just, they won't listen to reason. That the parents want them to go to school for kids who have learning disabilities, mm -hmm. and the kid doesn't want to, and the kid, won't, the kid will just dig in his heels, I'm not going, I'm not going. And I say to the parents, you make the decision. I want, if the kids are going to make decisions, they have to be informed decisions, meaning informed by talking with people who know more, who have more knowledge about and more experience than the kid does. But the kicker regarding decisions is that we used to think that we make our best decisions purely rationally. And actually, it turns out, as you know, that, 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 that emotions are the things that, that, that drive good decisions. Because if you have da damage to emotional centers in your brain, you can't decide what to have for breakfast. Because the emotions are rooted in what do I want? What's important to me? If I did this, how would it affect me or how would it affect my family or my friends? And I want kids to be wrestling with those kind of things. And, and my experience is that when, when, we, when we say it's going to be your call, is kids are honest with themselves. Kids, kids will ask for opinions. They'll ask for help. If, and, uh, so it's a pretty good stance to take, this idea where, where we can. Let's let kids make decisions. And if they make a crazy decision, like like my whole lunch is brownies, <laughs> we, we, we talk them out of that. But otherwise, many, I was talking to a parent the other day who'd been reading the book and has been letting her kid dress herself, you know, pick out her own outfits in, in kindergarten. Yeah. It says it's kind of, it's kind of some, some of them don't look that great, but it's just such a cool thing, the confidence that she has in, in, in picking out her stuff and the way it makes her feel like she's smart and, and she's respected. Right, right, okay. Yes, I like all of that. And uh, it, it does take a little bit of just a deep breath on the parents' part and the ability to say, you know, the outcome might not all look so pretty, but it will it will work, and and they're learning from it. So they come home and they say, you know what, eating brownies for my entire lunch made me feel sick, or going outside in that skirt and that t-shirt wasn't such a good idea in the snow. So they they start to learn and they start to change what they're doing. Um, I I wanted to go back to that idea of that consultant model that you mentioned and and that coda that you referred to when it really it came to parents you you're saying you can't make your kids do something against their will you can't make your kids want something they don't want you can't make your kids not want something they 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 don't want and it's okay at least for now for them to want what they want and not what what, what they don't want yeah. so. So I want to flip that a little bit and just find out how this consultant model can refer to some other key people in the children's lives. I have a lot of people listening who, yes, are parents, but I also have a lot of people listening who are educators and coaches in the kids' lives, like athletic coaches and after-school activity coaches. And, and I, I get these messages from people who are like, the kid's not practicing, the kid's not, you know, I know he has the potential, but he's not practicing. And I keep telling them, you get to practice. And, you know, piano teachers and, you know, people are working with kids in, in different regards. Teachers, they're not doing their homework. So what can we do, what message can we send to the teachers in the kids' lives, the coaches in the kids' lives, the activity directors in the kids' lives, so that they also take this consultant role and, and not the enforcer and not the rescuer so that the child gains a, a more of a sense of control as well. Yeah, you know, and I think with, with, with coaches, I mean, people often, um, parents will say, parents will say, 
you know, they, that, well, my, my kid, my kid will work all day for a coach and he, the coach, the coach is authoritarian. He's telling him what to do. Mm -hmm. I said, well, the difference between that and being a parent is the kid's signing up. The, the kid's choosing to, to, to play football or basketball or whatever it is. He's choosing to have that relationship where the coach is in charge. The coach is telling what, 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 what to do. And so I think, I think that there are kids who that, that they choose that they make that choice and that for that part of the life, they're okay. The coach is, knows more of the coach, the coach is in charge and they go along with that. The kids, the kids who won't practice, uh, the, the, the kids who, uh, the, the kids who, you know, coaches have, have trouble with, I think these principles really, really work. I think that um, if we find that, that trying to use force, does kind of kind of use the force of our will doesn't work that that we want to use communication te techniques and, and we want to and certainly letting kids know that just one of the most powerful things you can say to a kid is obviously I couldn't make you do this when, when, when my kids were little and, and I, I, I had this idea that you can't make another human being do something against their will if, if they'd fight me on something I want them to do I'd say you're acting like I, I think I could make you do that and what I do is I couldn't make you do it. All you'd have to do is flop to the floor, you know, or close your eyes. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't make you do it. Clench your teeth because I can't brush your teeth through that. <laughs> and I, I just prescribe all the ways that they could beat me if I try to fight them because I, I wanted to change the energy. And I think, I think that there's ways that, that caregivers and coaches and, and uh, can do this where we're basically we, we, we realize, and, I, and I'll say that that, I, I personally think the best thinking about working with the most difficult, resistant, stubborn, oppositional kids is, is, is the thinking of Ross Green and other people um, who take the idea that tell a kid, I'm not going to try to use the force of my will to make you do things. And I think it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's such a powerful thing. I'm not going to try to use the force of my will to make you do things. And then you kind of negotiate a little bit. You, you say, I, I, I can see that if you, if you work harder, that, that you, you, can, you can be a really good football player. If you're, or I, I, can, I can see that you have this potential if you work on it. And one of the questions I, I ask kids a lot, a lot is, would you, like to, would you like to be better than that, at that than you are? Would you like to work harder? Is there a way that I could, is, is there a way that I could help you F f uh, get, get down to business and work harder at this. So we're, again, we're seeking buy-in. We're, we're offering help, not trying to force it. And simply, I, I'm asking: is, is there a way that I could help? Is there th that I, I see this? I have this. I have confidence in you. I see this potential in you. Is there something that I can do that would be useful to you? As opposed to just telling the kid this, the same kind of thing over and over again. But taking that perspective of, of not trying to use the force of our will. And then talking with the kids and inviting, is there a way that I could help? That's pretty powerful. Um, I, I, got a, I, I was, was talking about my book in, uh, uh, in New York uh, a few months ago. And I was talking about this idea of consulting and offering help. And the, the, the mother turned to the audience and said, this idea has really changed my relationship with my 15-year-old daughter. She's in boarding school. And we talk on the phone three or four times a week. And every time, it turns into an argument because... She brings up a problem, and I said, we should do this or that, and then she fights back, and we end up arguing. So I've been reading this book, and, and so we talked. The last time we, she called, and she brought up some problem, I said, is there a way I could help? Oh. And, and it completely changed the energy, she said. We, we, it, then it wasn't an argument. Then, then we were brainstorming together about how, how to solve this problem, and, she, and I wasn't bringing up something, and she wasn't fighting. 
And from, from a neurological point of view, this makes such sense because there, if, if what happens is that if we're trying to force a kid, the kid's amygdala, the, 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 human beings don't like to be forced. And the amygdala that senses threat feels threatened and starts your stress response. And you go into that, they go into that fight part, the resistant part, and they can't listen to a word you're saying. And so some of it is, 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 is I'm not going to use the force of my will, and offering, is there a way that I could help? It's, it's very empowering. I love that tip, and I will definitely put high beams on that one and use it myself. Thank you so much for that. And throughout the book, and, and I know that some parents are listening here and saying, how does this apply to me? You discuss how this whole idea of self-direction and a sense of control relates to kids with ADHD and learning disabilities, kids who are on the spectrum, we're talking about kids who have challenges with organization, with motivation, with social skills, with risk-taking. So does this model apply for kids with ADHD and learning disabilities? And if so, how and what do parents need to know? So I've thought a lot about this. And when I was, working, when I was looking, uh, when I was doing research for the book, I was trying to find anything that focused on promoting promoting a sense of autonomy or sense of control in kids with ADHD or learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. I found one study, <laughs> one study about kids with LD, none on ADHD. Mm. And I don't see. I don't think you can become independent if you don't have a sense of autonomy. The sense of my this is this is my life. And it's, I've had the first my first job as a neuropsychologist, Robin. I, I was working in D.C. at Children's Hospital, and in the same week, I saw an, a seven-year-old girl with ADHD and a 19-year-old boy. And the girl would come home from school and would dutifully sit with her mother and do her homework before she went out to play. And she, and she she wouldn't play until she finished her work. And the 19-year-old boy had flunked all of his, his, his uh, classes the uh, first part of freshman year, the first semester of freshman year. And he, he was in the second semester of freshman year. And he told his parents that I'm going to class every day. I'm, I'm meeting with my professors after class. I'm really turning around. And he told me I haven't been to class in three weeks. Mm. And he, so he flunked all his classes the second semester as well. And I've been, I, so I thought a lot about what's the difference between these two kids. And it wasn't brain maturation. She was seven and he was 19. I really thought it was a sense of who has a, she had an accurate sense of this is my work. And the kid, the kid had gone through most of his schooling resisting other people's attempts to get him to work really always externalizing that somebody else's problem. It'd be okay if they just let me alone, it'd be, be fine. And I, I, what I concluded is I don't want kids to spend particularly their adolescent energy fighting other people's attempts to get them what's probably in their, to do, trying to get them to do what's probably in their own best interest. And so for me, kids with ADHD, clearly all the research suggests that, that what helps is, is, is various kinds of incentives to, to activate the brain. And I'm okay with that. But what, one of the principles for me is I don't want to work harder to help a kid solve his problems than the kid does. Again, it goes back to I don't want to take responsibility for something that's the kids. So with ADHD, that, that if a kid wants it, a lot of kids with ADHD, they want to they want to do better. 
They want to get stuff done. They want to get their work done. They want to, and that's, I want to start with that energy. I don't want to try to force. I want to say, is, is there a way that I could help? And I, I do believe that because we, we know with ADHD, that, that it really in many ways it's a motivational disorder due to lower levels of, of dopamine right. in, in the frontal cortex. And certainly rewards for some kids will jack up the level of dopamine. And sometimes you know, there, there's other things that can do that too, but, but the, the medicines for ADHD jack up dopamine. And, and I'm okay with, with, with saying, look, I, I, I know that your brain, this doesn't have no dopamine. I explained what dopamine, the, the relationship between dopamine and drive. And, um, and, and, and I say that to, 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 to focus on this boring stuff. And I'm, I'm willing to, if, if you want to get this stuff done, I'm willing to offer you an incentive to, to do it, see if it'll jack up your dopamine level. And so I, I, I think that's a pretty healthy way to use rewards as opposed to just here's what you need to do and here, here's, here's what the reward schedule is because I don't think that that undermines autonomy in my point of view. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with using rewards because of ADHD as long as it's, it's, it's in the service of, I'll help you in the service of your own goals. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, um, and in having, I, I have a kid who, who had, uh, had learning disabilities and ADHD and uh, just walk, I walk this walk. And my, my wife walked this walk, and uh, he got a PhD in psychology when he was 30 and w- wasn't a particularly good student uh, you know, in elementary school or high school. Uh, but um, that he, it, was, it really, it always felt to him like this is his work, this is his responsibility. And he asked for help when he needed it. So I, I, want, I want kids with ADHD or learning disabilities to have all the help they need. I, it's not that I, I want, don't want them to fail if they don't have to. I just don't want to work harder than they do. And I'll tell you, this is the last thing I'll say about this, is that I've trained hundreds of tutors over the last 30 years to work with kids who have learning disabilities and ADHD. And I've always told them, don't work harder to help them with their math or their reading or their, their writing or whatever it is than they do, because you're going to weaken them. And if it feels like you're working harder, say, something's wrong with this picture, because I feel like I'm working harder than you do, and I don't want to weaken you. So I'm happy to help. But I'm not going to work harder than you do. And almost always, when they do that, they, they, they change the energy, and the kid kind of steps up to the plate. Mm. Very interesting. Love this, and I think that a lot of people who are listening will be able to use that tool. I want before we go into our top tip, I wanted to just re-enter the conversation of failure and mistakes in light of some of the things that you just said. So. Yeah. We know that that kids, many of them fear failure, making mistakes, many parents do as well. And having a sense of control allows children to make choices, absolutely, but it also leaves them open to making more mistakes. They'll, they might fail the test because they didn't study, they left their equipment for their sports or activity at home because you're no longer reminding them, they forgot their appointment with their tutor, they spend all their money on something they really didn't need, uh, now they don't have it for what they actually want, they stayed up too late playing video games and now are dragging themselves to school. So. How do we talk with our kids about mistakes and failure when we're urging them to take a larger role in the decision-making in their lives? And what do we do and say when they actually do mess up and they're, they're feeling the pain of the, the other side of having a sense of control? Yeah. So I, I think that certainly it's counterintuitive to, to parents 
at least in my experience, in most parents, to, to, to think that if my kid is anxious, one of the best ways I can help them is managing my own anxiety better. And I think that that's one of the things we want to do because if, if, if kid makes if kids screw something up, that and, and we don't react to it, we, we, we don't react to it in a real upset way, that it really does have a good effect for the kid. And, and I think that um, so, so, so some of it is that our message is that it isn't you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> you know, it, it's really, is there a way that I could help? And, and so certainly a kid, kid if once in a while forgets his lacrosse stuff, call, 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 call home and say, come on, do you mind bring it to me? And, 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 or saying, is there, does it help if I remind you? Mm-hmm. you know, my kid with ADHD would come home in high school and he'd, have a, he had, uh, he'd tell me he have a test to study for. And I'd notice that he's just kind of he's avoiding it. And I'd say, you want me to bug you about that test? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you probably should. And mm-hmm. you want me to remind you? you know, Ned's son is, is an 11th grader. And Ned says stuff like, um, would it help, and I know you got that test. Would it help if I took your phone for a couple hours so you won't be distracted? Mm-hmm. You know? and, and Ned tells this story about um, his, when his son was in fifth grade. He, he, uh, and Ned says his son probably is, is pretty close to being ADHD, um, if not uh, having ADHD, but, but in fifth grade, he didn't turn in an assignment. And his, his mom said, why, why don't you turn this in? And the kid, the kid said, because you didn't remind me. Mm. You know, and, and Ned and I are working on this book. And Ned said, honey, let's get the same page here. And, and let's remind him that this is his work. Let's offer to help, but let's not try to force help or let's not try to manage his life for him. And so they took back, and, and he, uh, like, like next week, he got a 52 on a test. They said, he came home and said, I, I blew this test. He said, what went wrong? He said, I studied the wrong chapter. <laughs> you know? And I th- think that but they, 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 they played this consultant role. And, um, and he, he at times asked for help. He at times wants them to, 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 to bug me a little bit about going to bed. If, you find, if I'm up past 1030, we kind of just remind me to go to bed. And, and that's, what, that's what we want. It's not that kids have to, 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 or have to be able to be completely independent, you know, when, when they're 10 or 12 or 15. How, however, I, I, I feel, uh, especially because the mental health situation on college campuses now is just unreal. It's so, it's so worrisome. Yes. But I, I want kids to be really together before they go to college. And so what I, what I suggest to parents is tell your kids, I want you to be able to run your own life for at least six months before you go up to college. And that means scheduling your own appointment, making your lunch if you need to, getting into bed and out of bed, managing use of technology. I just want to be confident that you can go into this really dysregulated learning and living environment and manage it because you have so much you have a lot of practice running your own life and part of that running in your own life is making is is, is making decisions and learning from your mistakes mm-hmm. and you know for me i i went to graduate school the first time in english literature i thought it was the right thing for me and i, I went for 20 weeks at, at university of california berkeley at a doctoral program and i turned didn't turn in a single assignment <laughs> and, and, and so I flunked out. And when, I, when I work with underachievers now, I say, 20 weeks, nothing, top that. You know, <laughs> I set the underachieving bar high, you know. But, but the point is that I flunked out, and it was the most embarrassing, humiliating thing I ever experienced, and I had no idea what I was going to do the rest of my life. And it took me about two months to realize it was the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. And, and I think that so often, we, you know, that part of the reason that 
if it can't, if it, uh, I just was talking about this, my, my book in, um, in Fort Worth a couple weeks ago, and the mom said that her, her kid was always a good student, her daughter was a good student until seventh grade. In seventh grade, she started to slack off, and the mom started to get on her more. She slacked off, and the more the mom was on her, the more resistant the kid got, and the kid actually flunked one of her classes uh, one semester in seventh grade. And the mom didn't. The mom kind of said, I, "I don't want to fight about this anymore." And the kid, a couple of days later, said, "That's never going to happen again." Mm. And, and just, it just, it, and it didn't. And, and she just graduated from law school, apparently. But, but we want kids. It's a part of the message about, uh, I want you to practice running your own life, make your own decisions, is I want you to screw things up. I, right. want you to, I want you to make mistakes because they say that wisdom comes from bad decisions. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that if, if we're really clear, that when I test kids now, but if they're over 11, I say, I hope I, I find stuff that you suck at. Because most successful people, they're good in some things and they suck at other things and they don't try to make a living doing the stuff they suck at. You know, and I, and I just, because I wanted to get this idea that, that, and also that when I see underachievers, right, kids who are, who are not doing well in school, the first thing I tell them is that I flunked out of graduate school the first time I went. To just kind of normalize this idea, to just to diffuse this idea or, or to challenge this idea the successful people never make mistakes or it's just one right. the smooth climb to success. And that that's just not, I guess that may happen occasionally, but that's not the main way that people find a meaningful place in this world. And so I think being really clear ourselves, I want you to make decisions. And if you make a stupid decision, I want you to learn from it. I have confidence you can. Mm-hmm. It's being clear about that. That's what we want. Right, right. Okay, and then just asking, what went wrong, or is there a way I can help you get back yeah. on track? Yeah, yeah, and, and as you know, so, so many kids, particularly that Ned works with, Ned's works with kids who are mainly 16 to 17 year olds who are 11th grade studying for the SAT or the ACT. And you know, they'll get a bad grade on something and they'll tell Ned, tell Ned and say, Don't tell my mom, don't tell my dad, don't, <laughs> you know, just the kind of idea. And ideally, there's a chapter in our book called A Non Anxious Presence, which, in our view, that, that is, is it is a pretty cool goal for us to aspire to as parents or educators or coaches as being a non-anxious, non-emotionally reactive presence. Mm. So when kids do screw up, we, we can start what we can start to understand first. We can start with empathy as opposed with our own anxiety or anger or whatever it is. And we're just so much more helpful. Mm. You know, that, that I was just reading a book about in, infants who are born anxious. Uh, and and one of the one of the principles is that what human beings need, what infants need, is they need warmth and responsiveness. You know, you, you can't lecture an infant; <laughs> they don't respond to discipline. They respond to war- they, 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 they respond to warmth and responsiveness. And I'm not sure there's ever a time in our life where we don't res- that it doesn't help us. They have they have the people, our teachers, our coaches our after-school care providers, our parents, if we screw something up, to, 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 to practice empathy and right. not, not immediately to judgment or punishment or that's, that's all for you, Buster. But, <laughs> you know, that, that, that I think that we can be so much more helpful. Um, and, and in the book, you know, we, we have every chapter is what to do tonight to kind of, these kind of pretty practical ideas about applying this stuff. And so I want the, the message to be that I'm not going to freak out if you make a bad decision. That's, I, you know, I, I want you to practice that. That's how, that's how you grow. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's how we grow and learn and become better. And the stakes are low now. We can make these big mistakes, but they're really not that big because later on the stakes are much higher and you'll already have had experience. So you probably won't make them. So that makes a lot more sense. Give us your top tip. What is your top tip for helping kids to have a larger sense of self-control? Well, I would say that there, there's a book that was written in the 1980s called um, uh, how, to deal with, how, how to Deal with Your Acting Up Teenager. And it took a, it took a similar kind of approach, and not, not trying to force. You know, they, they really emphasized the futility of trying to force kids to do stuff. And many of my clients who had kids with ADHD would, would, would say, well, this doesn't apply to my, my kids don't respond to that. And I, I called one of the authors, and who was probably 75 at the time. And I, I, I called and I said, do you think that this approach applies to kids with ADHD? And she said, Bill, from our point of view, it's just a matter of treating kids respectfully. And I, I think that that may be my, my top point, which is that in my experience, if we treat kids respectfully, we, we, we respect their decisions, we, we support them in making decisions for themselves, we, have, we express confidence that they can do it, we adopt this more consultative rule, it's just respectful. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that um, uh, when I talk about this with people, it often is a little bit jarring and they think about the ways that when, when we micromanage things or we say, no, do it my way, not your way, that, that in some ways it, 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 we're, we're given the message that don't trust yourself, trust me. Right. Yeah, so I, I love this idea of, of part of this approach. It's just, it's just treating kids respectfully. They want they, they're, it's starting with the assumption they want to be successful. They want their lives to work. And our job, we, we can't make them do it. We can't force it. But if we treat them respectfully, we treat them with empathy, and, and we, we set limits, but we treat them respectfully, that, um, that it just grows them up in a really nice way. Hmm. I, I think that's a really good place to end in terms of a top tip and and understanding that our kids are not trying to make a mess of their lives. They're not trying to fight us on everything tooth and nail. They really want things to go well. I I love um, when Dr. Green says kids do well when they can. They really do want to be successful and, um, and they do like when we are, are happy with them and smile at them and and One of the ways that we can do that is by allowing them to take over their lives and say, we trust you, you, you've got this. And when you don't have it, you can, you have me and I will help you when you need it. I think that's awesome. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you and your book and all the great things that you offer? So uh, the, our, our, the website for our book, the, the, self-driven, the selfdrivenchild.com, um, and there, there's a closed f- uh, Facebook page for, that we're uh, uh, putting stuff on for people who read the book and like the book. Mm. Um, that's probably the main thing. Okay. And can, can, I, can I tell you one, one other really powerful story? I would love to hear one. In, in, in relation to what you were saying about just, you know, smiling and being happy to see them, I, I saw this kid. 30 years ago, who had, had um, he was 21, and he had a really tough time in high school, a lot of fighting with his parents, didn't do well in school, had had some drug problems as a young adult, and had trouble holding a job. And I don't remember what I was supposed to do when, like, when he came to consult with me, but I said, is there something your parents could have done when you're in high school that would have been different? 
And he said, I think it would have been, it would have been helpful if they'd been happy to see me sometimes. And, and, I, and I think oftentimes if our kids aren't doing well, we, we feel that, that we can't just enjoy them because we're giving them the message that it's okay for you to keep screwing up. And, and from my point of view, one of the best things we can do for kids is simply to enjoy being with them. And I think that there's, there's because kids, then kid, kids spontaneously experience themselves as a joy producing organism. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'll just say that um, I, I love that idea that, that simply just, just smiling for, for teachers, for coaches, yes. just being happy to see them is one of the best things we can do in terms of building that relatedness. I mentioned self-determination theory that, that says to be self-motivated. It takes relatedness, a con connection with people, uh, autonomy and competence. And we want to focus on that relatedness piece. That's one of the things that so many of the adults and kids live, just, just focus on, on that relatedness and being happy to see them. Mm. One of the best ways we can do that. What a good story to illustrate that point. And thank you so much, Bill, for your insight and your strategies, your scripting. Uh, I loved all the things that you said about how we can help transfer this control over to our children, have them feel that they are autonomous, that they are capable, that they are competent, and that they know that we have faith in them. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure and keep, keep doing the voodoo that you do so well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. You just heard Dr. Stickrud just talked about their closed Facebook page. We'll be putting that on our show notes. Let's talk about it at drrobinsilverman.com, twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram and I'll be putting memes up of all the great things that you just heard Bill saying because there were so many great quotes that he said. I'm going to slap them on a meme. You can share them all over the place. And if you love this podcast like I did. I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it. I hope you'll do that right now. It is so helpful to us for the exposure of this podcast so that other people learn about it and can listen to it and then use it in their own homes. It would be so very much appreciated. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there, and the show notes, as I said, will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. I know you heard things today, and you're probably saying, ah, I messed up, I messed up. It's okay. It's okay. You're getting the information you need. And now we can make the change. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting, it's the ultimate do-over. I see you, I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. Been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.